Thank you for joining us today. At ResLife, our mission is to develop committed followers of Jesus Christ to reach the world. Our content is created to equip and empower you in God's purpose. We hope you enjoy this message. Today, I want to talk to you about the process that a, that a person goes through who's a Christian to become a disciple. Now, the message today is not to make you feel bad about where you are, but it's to help you reach up. How many know, no matter where we are, we have a next step. There's a next step. There's a next step. There's a next step. And, and this, this series of messages is really going to help us, I believe, understand where is our next step and, and help us take that step. When Jesus arose from the dead, as he's about ready to go to heaven, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go you, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. So Jesus' purpose for every one of us is that we be a disciple. Now, most of the time when someone comes to the Lord, they don't start out as a disciple. I know in my case, I got saved because I did not want to go to hell. I wanted fire insurance. <laughs> now, somebody said that's not a good reason to get saved. That's a really good reason to get saved. Right. Jesus said, don't fear the one who can just destroy the body. But fear the one who afterwards can throw into everlasting torment and darkness. That's a good reason to get saved. But it's not where you want to stay. You, you just kind of got God in the door. But now there's some steps. There's a, there's a process. Other people, they get saved because really they're, they're looking for community or they're looking for benefits. Now in Psalms 103, David said, and forget not all his benefits. There's benefits. But that gets us in the door, but that's not where we should stay. You know, those that just come for benefits, really, they're kind of like a, a consumer Christian. You know, it used to be we had GDP, gross domestic product, and they would judge the, how the country was doing on gross domestic product. But now we have the consumer index. We're judging more on consumer. What is everybody buying? What are they consuming now, say, instead of what they're producing. And, and that attitude has really slipped into the church. And a lot of the church, we're, we, we really are. We're, just, we're in this middle of this consumer Christianity. You come to church, you know, well, you better preach on what I like. And I better like the type of music you have. And it better not be too loud or it better not be too quiet. And you better bless me and you better take care of my kids. And I got any problems, you better do this for me and that for me and that for me and that for me and that for me. And if not... I'm out of here. Come on. That's where a lot of people are. All right. Now, now it's okay if you're there, but don't stay there, please. All right. We, we do not want you to be a 20 year old Christian and we're still feeding you pablum and changing your spiritual diapers. You need to grow up. You need to grow up. So, so no matter where we are, there's another step. Where do we, we, we keep on growing. In fact, it says in Ephesians, until we reach the full stature of Christ. You know, God's plan is for us to be just like Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, a disciple who is fully trained is just like his teacher, his master. 
The, the goal is that we become totally committed disciples of Jesus, not just consumer Christians. Luke 14, 26, Jesus said, listen, if anyone, that means you, will come after me and does not hate his father, his mother, wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. For whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, literally, he says, you got to hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sister. And it's really a comparison here. He's not saying you're going to be cruel to somebody, but he's just saying there's, there's got to be in the disciple's heart, a heart that is 100% after Jesus, loves him more than anything else. In fact, our love for him needs to be so great that comparison to anything else is like hate. It's not that we're cruel. It's not that we actually are against somebody else, but he's got to be number one. Our love for our family is right, but it's got to be secondary. That love for Jesus needs to be far more than anything else. And Jesus really said it. He said, you can't be my disciple. You might think you're a disciple, but you're not a disciple unless Jesus is the number one pursuit of your life. Seek first the kingdom of God. And I know you'll say, yeah, but man, I got a Christian tattoo. I got, I got a Christian jewelry and I got a bumper sticker and I've got a t-shirt that says born again. And that's all good. That's all good. But Jesus said, if you don't deny yourself and put me first, you cannot be my disciple. So listen. Somebody says, well, Christianity, it's, it's, it's been tried and found wanting. Listen, consumer Christianity has been tried and found wanting. But the real deal, discipleship, no, it just hasn't been tried. Because when it is, it's not found wanting. Jesus is not after just a few hours, a few dollars, and a few prayers. He wants to be the number one pursuit of your life. He has to have 100% of you. The Bible says you were redeemed. It says you were bought with a price and you do not belong to yourself. So he wants your mind. He wants your soul. He wants your body. He wants your time. He wants your past, your present, your future, your reputation, your morals, your talents, your skills, your ability, your family, your friends, your money, your talents. Everything belongs to him because you belong to him. You were bought with a price. So what that means is that today there will be a sacrifice and it is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you. Are you really committed? Because if you are, it'll cost you something. Or are you just a consumer? Are you just along for the ride? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. 
So we're supposed to suffer with him and then we're going to reign with him. But yet, it's just amazing to me how, how people think that Christianity is going to cost them nothing, is going to be easy. Uh, many times I've prayed with people and, and uh, I'll pray with them and, and at the end I'll say, now, will you do something? Almost every time, not every time, but most of the time, 90% of the time probably, this is what they say. Well, if it's easy. If it's easy. Jesus didn't say it was going to be easy. He said it's going to cost you something. Second Timothy 2. You therefore as a good soldier endure hardship. You must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So he's comparing being a disciple of Jesus to being a soldier. Now, when you become a soldier, first thing that they do is take you to boot camp. And they, they, they just beat the eebie-jeebies out of you. They get you in shape because you're going to be a soldier. You're going to go to war, and that's even worse. It's not saying it's going to be easy. 2 Corinthians 5, 15. For he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. It says you should not be living for yourself. I shouldn't be living for myself. We should be living for him who died for us and rose again. The world or culture, they're going to tell you. This is what they're going to tell you. Hey, hey, you can go to church, but don't go overboard. Like, don't become some sort of a Jesus freak. Do not get carried away. Don't waste your life on Jesus and religion. Just be normal like everybody else. Go to church once in a while if you've got to. That's what the world's going to tell you. But Jesus said, unless you're willing to put everything else aside and pursue me more than any other thing, he said, you cannot be my disciple. That's the next step. We live for him, not for a career, not for our spouse, our kids, our hobbies, our friends, money, leisure, entertainment. I mean, my goodness, we even have a restaurant. Thank God it's Friday. TGIY. I mean, you know, people just like, and, and by the way, food's really good there. I'm, I'm just saying that the people, they're just, they're just living for the weekend, right? So I can get out and do this and do that and party and, and hang out. Now listen, when the world's applauding you, it's most likely that God is not. Jesus said, what's highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Why don't you think about this? Jesus had 12 disciples. Jesus, Judas, through transgression, fell. So he had 11 left. Of those 11, 10 died as martyrs gave their life to preach the gospel. Now, one of the things that should say to us is this. Nobody would give their life for a lie. If it wasn't true, they wouldn't have given their life. Now, the one that didn't die as a martyr was John. And uh, when Domitian was, was emperor, uh, John was condemned to death. He was put in a pot of boiling oil and just kept preaching. Didn't have any effect. So they took him out. They forced him to drink poison. 
which also didn't work. It says, and they shall drink any deadly thing, it shall not harm them. That didn't do anything. So they sent him off to the island of Patmos. And he, from there, he wrote that last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation. Uh, one of his disciples, John's disciples, was Polycarp. And uh, he was told the, the government's coming, the Romans are coming to grab you and run. And he stayed and he was brought before the magistrate who simply said, all you need to do is deny Jesus. All you need to do is just say a little prayer to the emperor and uh, you can leave. And he said, for 86 years, I have served Jesus and he has never in any way let me down. So what you're going to do, get with it. We took him out, burned him at the stake. He said, I knew that was, he said beforehand, he said, I know that's what's going to happen. He said, but I'm ready. If we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. We'll also reign with him. Jesus said in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. We need to be ready to give up everything. You say, what does that mean? It means everything. I, I remember on 45 years ago on a Sunday night, I prayed a prayer and received Jesus. At the time I was attending Kelvin College, the group of people that I hung out with, we uh, hung out on the third floor at the library up in the corner. And I remember going there the next morning, seeing my friends and telling them last night, I said, I went to church, I prayed, I got saved, I received Jesus. And here's the crazy thing, they never wanted to hang out with me again. I, I, instantly, I lost all my friends. You know what? That was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. How many of you realize that bad company corrupts good morals? 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Now, you give up your right to decide what's right and what's wrong when you become a Christian. You give up your right. In fact, that's what got Adam and Eve in trouble in the first place. God said, don't eat of that tree. And the serpent said, oh, you can eat of that tree. And you will not die. In fact, you eat of that tree and you'll become like God. They ate of that tree and we are in a mess today. How I many you know when you get to heaven, we're talking to Adam and Eve. Okay. You know, but people say, well, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? Honestly, who cares what you think? Who cares what I think? I don't care what I think. <laughs> I mean, the, the question is, what does God say about it? In my opinion or your opinion doesn't matter. As uh, the prophet said, I will look to see what he will say to me. You find in, you open your Bible and you will find out what's right and what's wrong. I, I, I love Romans chapter 12 in the, the message Bible. Let me read you just a couple verses. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work and walking around. And place it before God as an offering. Embrace what God does for you. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture 
that you fit into, into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize that he want what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. What's it saying? It's, it is literally saying that God wants to have to do with every part of your life, with your ordinary life, your sleeping life, your eating life, your going to work life, your walking around life, every bit of it. When you're a disciple, uh, it's because you put Jesus first and he's in the middle of everything that you do. Now, way back in Genesis chapter five, there's a story of a man by the name of Enoch. And this is what it says. It says, Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. And do you know what? That's what every one of us are supposed to do. As a disciple, we're supposed to walk with God in our everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, you're walking around life. Again, the Bible says you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, in your spirit, which are God's. Everything about us, we're to glorify God. Jesus said, you can't be my disciple if you don't put me first. He also said something else very interesting. He said, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, money. Money can't be first place. It can't be to you. It can't be your status symbol, your security, your trust. Or as the Old Testament prophet said, you know, the, the, the rich man's wealth is his walled city. It's his confidence. It's his security. No, it can't be. Because no one can serve both God and mammon. Jesus is not an add-on. He, he, he's not just supposed to be somebody who brings you blessings and benefit, some cosmic bellhop who's there for your convenience, who's your Sunday God. He's not playing church. He's not a good luck charm. In fact, the Bible tells us he's the pearl of great price. He's the treasure that's hidden in the field that you go out and you'll sell everything that you have to get that treasure. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. The Bible says he will come and he'll rule with a rod of iron. He's got that double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He's going to come and execute the vengeance of the day of our God. And he's the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's concerned about every part of our life. That's why the Bible reveals him in so many different ways. In fact, in every book of the Bible, we find Jesus being revealed. In Genesis, he's the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's our Passover lamb. Leviticus, our high priest. In Numbers, he's that pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's a prophet like Moses. In Joshua, he's the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he's our lawgiver. In Ruth, he's our redeemer. In Samuel, he's our trusted prophet. In Chronicles, he's our reigning king. 
In Ezra, he's a faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he rebuilds the walls of our broken down lives. In Esther, he's our Mordecai. In Job, he's our living redeemer. In Psalms, he's our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he's our wisdom. In the Song of Solomon, he's our lover and bridegroom. In Jeremiah, he's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he's the four-faced four man. In Daniel, he's a fourth man in a fire. In Hosea, he's our husband who comes after us even when we backslide. In Joel, he's a baptizer. In Obadiah, he's a savior. In Jonah, he's a great foreign missionary. In Micah, he's a messenger with beautiful feet. In Habakkuk, he's an avenger. In Zephaniah, he's a fountain of blood that brings forth salvation and cleanness for those that have been trapped, that need redemption. In Malachi, whoo, in Malachi, it says he arises with healing in his wings and he's coming. In, Mar in Matthew, he's a Messiah. In Mark, the wonder worker. In Luke, the son of man. John, son of God. In Acts, he's moving as the Holy Spirit. In Romans, he's a justifier. Corinthians, a sanctifier. In Galatians, a redeemer from the curse of the law. In Ephesians, he's Christ full of unsearchable riches. In Philippians, he supplies our needs. In Colossians, he's the fullness of the Godhead. In Thessalonians, the soon coming king. In Timothy, the mediator between God and man. In Titus, a faithful pastor. Philemon, a friend of the oppressed. In Hebrews, the blood of the everlasting covenant. In James, the healer of the sick. In Peter, the chief shepherd. In John, he's love. In Jude, he's the Lord coming with 10,000s of his saints. And in Revelation, king of kings and Lord of Lords. See, listen. He's revealed to us in so many different ways because no matter what your need is, he is the answer. No matter what your need. So God just continually reveals them again and again and again and again. A disciple gives up anything and everything so nothing gets in the way of the, his love for God, of his dedication to God. It changes. When you, when you see things this way, it changes the way you see everything. Your family, your entertainment, your job, your money. You are a representative of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, of the kingdom of God, every place that you go. You are representing him. But he, you cannot let anything become more precious to you than him. And whenever it does, it becomes an idol. It becomes an idol. You may have heard us talk about this, but uh, in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 24, it talks about marriage. It says a man will leave his father and his mother, and he'll cleave to his wife, and the two will become one. Now, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that's exactly what happens with Christ in the church. Exactly the same thing. So when we talk about marriage, this is one of the things that we teach you. That when you become married, everything becomes co-owned and co-administered. Everything becomes co-owned and co-administered. It's not my money, it's our money. It's not my time, it's our, our time. See, and literally the same thing, he says, it's a picture of Christ in the church. You know, we no longer are our own. We belong to him. 
We belong to him once we become Christians. So he wants nothing to get in the way, to become more important to us than our relationship with him. Now, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, God has spoken to them, said, you're going to have a son. And for 25 years, they're obeying God, going through the promised land, but no child shows up. And during that time, if you look, you will find he's making an altar. He goes to a place and he makes an altar and he worships God and he makes commitments to God. And then he goes to another place and he makes an altar and another place and he makes an altar. And then finally, his son Isaac is born. And here's the interesting thing. No more altars. No more altars. That the, 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 the thing, I mean, Abraham has been waiting for like 50 years for this kid. And when he shows up, that kid is spoiled rotten. I mean, Abraham is like with the kid and doing this with the kid and everything. And then God one day says, hey, Abraham, your, your son Isaac, take him over to Mount Moriah, this place I'm going to show you. And off from there is a sacrifice. Abraham. Gets his son, gets a few donkeys, a couple servants, some wood, takes off. They get down at the foot of the mountain, leaves the servants. They're on their way up the mountain. And Isaac, now, scholars tell us he's at least 20 years old by this time. Now, Abraham is at least 120 years old. Okay. So they're going up the mountain, and, and uh, his son says, hey, uh, we've got the wood, we've got the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham prophetically says, the Lord will supply a sacrifice. And they get up to the top and he builds an altar, puts his son on it. He's got that Arabian curved knife and he's just about to kill his son. And God says, stop. He said, I didn't want your son. He said, but I just wanted to know that you were willing to give your son the most precious thing to you. And he looked over. And just in a thicket, not very far away, there was a ram. And they took that ram and they sacrificed that ram. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, you go to Israel today. The place where Abraham was is where the Temple Mount is today. In fact, if you've seen many pictures of, of Jerusalem, you've seen the Temple Mount and that gold dome. I remember the dome, the dome of the rock, right? The actual place where Abraham was standing with his son is underneath that dome. Now, if you could make the walls disappear and the wall of the Temple Mount disappear and look off over to your side, you'd see a little valley that goes down and it's small. You probably wouldn't even call it a valley, but it's called the Valley of Kidron. And then just right as it goes up, there's a place there called Calvary. And that's where Jesus was sacrificed. Now, your Bible probably says, and Abraham said, Jehovah Jireh. I remember the song, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. But if you will look at your Bible and look at your center column, this is what it will say. In this mountain, the sacrifice will be provided. In this mountain, the sacrifice will be provided. Because Abraham was willing to give God, God his son. God said, I will give you my son. And he will in this place. He will die for your sin and he will pay for your sin. It's just a few chapters before that, that Abraham made a covenant with God. 
Now, you know what happens when you make a covenant. Most people, the only covenant you will ever enter into is the marriage covenant. So when, when I married Jeannie, she gave me a hundred bucks because that's how much she had to her name and no debt. She said, here's me and a hundred bucks. And I said, here's me and a lot more than a hundred bucks. <laughs> but all of a sudden, everything that was mine was hers and everything that was hers was hers. No, no, no. That's why you're single. Come on. We got to get you straightened out. <laughs> Abraham was in covenant with God. And because Abraham was willing to give his son, God gave his son. But listen, Abraham had something that was very, very dear to him. He needed to be willing to sacrifice what was the most dear to him. Anytime that anything becomes more important to you or to me than our relationship with God, that thing becomes an idol. Jesus said, doesn't matter if it's your spouse, your kids, your mother, your father, your children, your possessions. He said, you've got to be able to put all of that as secondary and make the pursuit of your relationship with God the number one pursuit of your life. Would you please bow your heads for just a moment? If you're here today, but you're not right with God, you're either away from the Lord, you once lived for him, or you're, you're not now, or perhaps you know you're not right with God. But here's where many people are. They don't know where they stand with God. The Bible says this. It says, we've written these things to you that you may know that you have everlasting life. You're not supposed to die and then find out if you're right with God. You're supposed to know today you're forgiven, right with God, on your way to heaven. And if you do not know that, you're not where you should be with God. And this is for you. Right? In just a moment, I'm going to count to three. And when I say three, I'm going to ask you to lift your hand. And when you lift your hand, this is what you're saying. You're saying, I want to, number one, surrender my life to Jesus. And number two, I want to receive the forgiveness that he has for me. The Bible says in Psalms 99 that he was to them the God who forgives. And that's who he's going to be to you today. And there is no life so dark, no sin so shocking, attitude so bad, sex so perverted, relationship so appalling, addiction so dreadful, that God's love will not reach down and the blood of Jesus will not cleanse you and pick you up. God specializes in impossibilities. And if you're not right with God today, when I say three, I want you to lift your hand. Again, what you're saying is you're saying this to God. God, I know I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And I'm coming to Jesus to be saved and to be forgiven. One. As you lift that hand, you're saying, God, today I'm going to give Jesus all of my heart, all of my life. I'm going to hold nothing back. Two. Now get ready. As you lift that hand, you're saying, today Jesus is going to come into my heart. I'm surrendering to him. I'm receiving his forgiveness. He's going to make me a new person on the inside. I'm going to be a part of your family on my way to heaven. 
Three, lift that hand up. Pray with me. I am not right. I want to get right. Thank you. I see that hand and that hand and that hand and that hand. Are there others up in the balcony? Include me, Pastor. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you back here. Somebody else, include me. I'm not where I should be. Way over to my right. Thank you. God bless you. All right. Right over here to my left. Thank you. God bless you. Now, would everybody please stand? Nobody moving. Please. Now, if you lifted your hand, please look right at me. Would you please move to the aisle that's nearest you, wherever that is. Make your way right down here. Bring whoever you came with. Bring your coat. Bring your purse. Bring your Bible. Whatever you have. But please make your way down. If you're in the balcony, come on down. We are going to wait for you. But make your way down here. The Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. And when, you, when, when we come, we're going to pray. And God is going to meet you right here. And when we say amen in just a moment, your past is going to be gone. You're going to be right with God. You're going to be on your way to heaven. Give them a hand as they're coming. Awesome. And again, from the balcony, you'll make your way down. We're going to wait. We're going to wait for you. Awesome. Now, wow. 45 years ago, I was right. Where, come on, get down here. 45 years ago, I was right where you are today. All right. We're going to pray the same prayer. Right? And it's been working for 45 years. Right? And 45 years from today, you pray this from your heart today. It's still going to be working for you. All right. Now, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, this is what it says. It says, whosoever, that means you. We'll call on the name of the Lord and we're going to call on his name the way the Bible shows us to. Right? And this is the promise that goes with this verse. We'll be saved. So when we say amen, you're going to be forgiven. You're going to be right with God. Your past is going to be gone. Right? All you need to do is pray this prayer from your heart. Right? Everybody, please take one hand, put it over your heart. Lift your other hand towards heaven and let's pray together. Say, oh God. I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe his blood paid for my sins. I believe he rose again. I give him all of my heart and all of my life. I hold nothing back. I'm going to live for you every day. I thank you. You've heard my prayer. That I'm forgiven. My past is gone. I'm a part of your family today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope what you heard today has been encouraging and given you new insight into the Word of God. We upload weekly, so join us again next time. Be blessed and enjoy your week.